Hello, mummers, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. I'm excited to share with you today an incredible interview with Dr. Sarah Buckley talking about primal birthing and mothering. Enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with Physio Laura. Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Oh, This lady, this incredible woman, Dr. Sarah Buckley, has been on my hit list for a very long time. You'll know the podcast celebrated its three-year anniversary last week, so I would say she's probably been on my list for about that amount of time, and I finally put all the pieces together and knew what I wanted to talk about with her, and I think she's the perfect person to finish off this podcast series If you don't already know, after this interview, I will be taking a hiatus. I'm getting ready to birth baby number four and I will be going into a family cocoon season of life and I won't be running the podcast during that. So I'm not sure what that looks like for the future, but for the moment, this will be the last interview and it's a real bang to finish for any pregnant not even pregnant, people thinking about pregnancy. This is such an important conversation to be having today. Dr. Sarah Buckley is trained as a GP and family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics and family planning. She's the mother of four home-born children and currently lives in Brisbane, where she's a PhD candidate, as well as writing and lecturing on pregnancy, birth and parenting. And Sarah has done amazing studies and research in the hormone oxytocin, which we know is like the main driver of pregnancy, birth, labor, mothering, such an important hormone that has been a real focus of her research. And I encourage everyone to go and check her out on social media at Dr. Sarah J. Buckley. And please go check out her website too. She has some incredible blogs up there covering a whole range of topics through pregnancy, birth and mothering. And I have personally read every single blog of hers and they really are so informative so I encourage you all to go and check her out she is a wealth of knowledge and I'm excited for this chat today because we cover some topics that we've touched on the podcast but not in this amount of depth so we really cover the hormonal blueprint of labor and pregnancy and mothering and why oxytocin is so important how we can protect the physiology of this and we also cover third stage now this is the birth of the placenta and this is not something I've covered in as much depth as we do today but this is really important because unfortunately in today's day and age third stage or the delivery of the placenta is a very managed process as is birth to be honest in most hospital settings but the third stage really should be physiological if everything is going okay and Sarah really talks to the importance of protecting physiology in the third stage and what it looks like to have a managed third stage versus a physiological third stage and all of the evidence and beautiful research behind why this is so important and that's definitely a conversation I wanted to get out there because if you're like myself for my first two pregnancies I just thought you just, once you had your baby, whatever happens afterwards happens. You just maybe have an injection and your placenta comes out and it's all well and good. But that's not actually what we're physiologically primed for. And I really want you to listen to that part of the conversation in case this is news to you too. And in case you never knew how important that golden window of time is after birth and why physiology is still so important, even after the baby is delivered, it's still so important to have all of the same environmental 
things happening to pump oxytocin because birth's not over until the placenta is birthed. So it's really important conversation. Now you're going to love it. So go and follow at Dr. Sarah J. Buckley on social media. And as always, please come on over to at Physio Laura and let me know what you loved about this. Like I said, the podcast will now be having a hiatus from any interviews. So I really thank you so much for being here. It's been honestly such a joy to be able to bring this podcast to your ears. It's it truly doesn't feel like work. I've been able to interview the most incredible people in this space, be able to have the most incredible conversations. I have personally learned and grown so much through this last three years of podcasting and I'm so grateful to everyone who has listened to the thousands and thousands of downloads that I get to see, to all the feedback I get from everyone and it's been such a privileged three years and um, thank you so much for your support. But without further ado, let's jump into this final interview with Dr. Sarah Buckley. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Dr. Sarah Buckley, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've been on my hit list for many you know, years, probably really since I started this podcast. I've been following your work for a while. I've heard you speak. You've got the kindest, most gentlest voice and you speak so wonderfully about all of the hormonal physiology of pregnancy and birth. And I'm really honored to have you here today. So thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Laura. Great to be here and welcome to all the listeners as well. And I love women like yourself who get excited about something and just go deep on something. And what you've gone deep on is so many things, but oxytocin. (laughs) That seems to be your absolute bread and butter. That is the thing that seems to really tickle your fancy. It seems to be the thing that you've really gone deep into studying. You've done an amazing PhD. And all these incredible works and publications on this hormone in particular. And I really want to speak about that today. And in general, the hormonal physiology of pregnancy and birth. So let's start there. Take it wherever you like, Sarah, but maybe also introduce exactly what it is, because I don't think we can assume that all the listeners know what oxytocin is just yet. Okay, thanks, Laura. Great. Yes, oxytocin is a hormone, and a hormone is a substance that's made in one part of the body and it has effects at another part of the body. And oxytocin was actually discovered about 100 years ago um, and named oxyfastocin birth. So it was first discovered as the hormone that makes birth go fast mm-hmm. and produced in the deep layers of the brain, the hypothalamus, and then it's stored in a little gland um, called the pituitary gland and it's released from there into the body and when it gets to the uterus that's how it makes birth go fast but we've actually discovered in the last 20 to 30 years so much more about oxytocin so listeners may know it as a hormone of love the hormone of trust the hormone of monogamy and a whole lot of other things because we know now that it has not only these physical effects of making birth go fast and a lot more but it also has powerful effects within the brain. And as it's made in the brain, it's released into the brain as well as into the body. And this is a really important um, thing to know about birth as well, because when it's released into the brain, it has calming, connecting, and actually pain-relieving effects as well. So it's a beautiful, I call it Mother Nature's superb design that as it's being released into the body and to the uterus and making birth go fast, the more and more there is of that, the more and more oxytocin there is in the brain and that counteracting the stress and the pain of labor. Mm-hmm. And actually, the other interesting thing about oxytocin, and this is why it's the feel-good hormone, the hormone of love, 
is that it powerfully activates the reward and pleasure centers in the brain. When we do things that release oxytocin, it feels good. So as I said, oxytocin is not just a hormone of birth, it's also a hormone of making a baby. (laughs) So it's a hormone of sexual activity in all mammalian species. It's also a hormone of eating. When we eat and share a meal with people, um, we release oxytocin. It's a social affiliative hormone. It's what makes us feel good when we interact with other people. Mm. Some of the powerful effects it has in the brain, as I said, it's harming and connecting because not only does it reward and stimulate um, social affiliative behavior, but it also adjusts the what we call the autonomic nervous system, which is like the automatic nervous system. It's the nervous system that's controlling our heart rate, our blood pressure, our, the blood flow to our skin, for example. And when we're under the influence of oxytocin, our sympathetic, which you may know as fight or flight system goes down and our parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest, relaxation, the healing system actually goes up. So all of those things are happening when we um, stimulate the release of oxytocin in labor and outside of labor. And just coming back to the pleasure and reward centers, so it's a feel-good hormone, not just because it makes us feel calm and relaxed and sociable, but also it actually specifically stimulates the reward and pleasure centers of the brain. And if we think about any mammal giving birth, we're all mammals, we have mammary glands, we suckle our young. So dogs, cats, elephants, they don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their babies. It happens through the processes of labor and birth. So this powerful activation of the reward and pleasure centers in the laboring female's brain means that as soon as she meets her babies or baby or babies, it's got Mm -hmm. this powerful reward and pleasure center activation. And she goes, oh, those are my babies. They're a source of reward and pleasure for me. Mm -hmm. And that's what stimulates maternal care in all species. Oxytocin is is essential for maternal care in all mammalian species because I say it's like the best first date ever. And the mother's (laughs) fully primed to fall in love with her baby and the senses of the baby, the smell, the taste, because most mammals lick their babies, the sight of their babies then becomes rewarding and motivating for her. And she'll give that dedicated care that every mammalian mother gives to her newborn and there's no reason to think that doesn't happen in women as well that's why I call it ecstatic birth Um, Mm. euphoria lots of women have that sense of pleasure and ecstasy as they meet their babies for the first time through the processes of oxytocin and other birthing hormones as well that's beautiful so we all need (laughs) this amazing hormone coursing through our body because it sounds like it does so many amazing things so Obviously, it's one of the main players when it comes to the hormones of birth. I know there are other ones that are important too, but we're going to focus just on the oxytocin today. So when it comes specifically to pregnancy and birth, is there something women need to be doing to allow this hormone to take full effect? Or is it more about what we shouldn't be doing? Are there things to be avoiding? Are there things to be steering clear of to allow oxytocin to have its full effect? Or are there certain practices that women should try to try and increase their oxytocin effect? Because I feel like a lot of women listening to this will go, okay, that's great, but how do I get the full effects of this? How do I get to enjoy all of that delicious oxytocin feel? I'll just introduce one concept and come back to it. 
Um, as I said, having a baby has a lot of things in common with making a baby, not just mm-hmm. oxytocin, but a whole lot of other um, hormones and processes are involved. And that's why some people do actually experience literally orgasmic birth. And that's why birth is designed to be a pleasurable, rewarding experience for all the reasons I've just described. And if you want to have good sex, a bit like you want to have a good birth, you really need to feel private, safe and unobserved, the core requirement for birth in all species. If if you've had domestic animals or grown up on a farm, you know that you don't disturb the laboring female. She's got to feel private. She's got to feel safe. So one of the ways to help oxytocin to flow is to really create the conditions for it to flow because we can't actually push the river. We can't naturally make birth go faster and make birth come earlier. There's all kinds of medical ways of doing that, which we'll talk about, but it's really providing the condition for for labor and birth to unfold. Some people describe oxytocin as the shy hormones for feeling private and safe. And if you think about ourselves as mammals and mammals have been evolving for 65 million years (laughs) and all of that time, or 99.999% of that time, it's been in the wild and any female giving birth in the wild needs to know she's in the safest place possible. And if she doesn't feel safe, that's a marker that there's danger and she might not survive and her baby might not survive. So we've evolved to really seek the safest place that we can have. And for most of us, or for all mammals, I should say, that's a familiar place. So laboring in a familiar setting and Many women have that experience of like they're laboring at home, it's all going well, they hop in the car, move to hospital and everything shuts down because at that deep brain limbic system, we're not feeling safe. Mm. So that's really important. And a a rule of thumb might be if you want to assess how safe you'd feel to have a baby, is it somewhere you could make a baby? Mm. That's such a great point though, really, because I think as much as you can say how you make a baby is how you birth a baby, when you actually say, would I have sex in this environment? Would I be intimate with my partner in this environment? And if the answer is no, then it's probably something you need to consider when it comes to where you're birthing and who's in the room and you know what does it look like and is it bright and shiny or is it dim and dark and unobserved? So that's a really great point that you make. Yes, and one of the ways to protect the limbic system, this primitive level of the brain is really through the senses because it's the senses that tell us if we're safe or not safe, like what we see, what we hear, what we smell, actually oxytocin connected to the sense of smell. So can, you know, if you are in that situation of laboring at home, moving to hospital, like how can you protect your limbic system or your senses from that external stimulation from that foreign place, right? So you might want to wear an eye mask. You might want to have something to listen to. You might have something to smell, all of those Mm. things. You might have someone to protect you, actually protect the space like your own midwife or doula. But Mm. before we move on, I just want to add one more thing because um, as I said, labor is, the whole process is like a physiological, biological process. And it's very difficult to hurry along a biological process. You can't make your child walk earlier than they're going to walk naturally, any of those kind of things. And it's like that for the onset of labor. Every mother and baby has a rhythm um, and a timing where both mother and baby are exactly ready for the onset of labor. And again, going back to our evolutionary model, This is critical. The baby has to do this incredible journey to life outside the womb and also has to survive the rigors of labor. Every contraction caused by oxytocin and other processes squeezes the baby's placenta and deprives the baby of blood and oxygen to some extent. So the baby has to be at peak readiness for that, at peak readiness for life outside the womb. And the mother 
has to be ready for an effective, efficient labor and birth. Again, in, a, in evolutionary times, the laboring female is vulnerable. All of our mammalian cousins, it's the same. So the duration of labor is the duration of risk. This Mother Nature's superb design is to have an um, effective, efficient labor and birth, as short duration as possible. And one of the ways that happens and one of the ways that labor starts, going back to that, is because in the lead up to labor, there's a whole lot of processes that ensure that the mother's uterus or the mother's whole body actually is optimally ready for these processes. So there's actually an increase or we say upregulation in the oxytocin system in the lead up to labor and birth. Um, Just going back another hormonal step. So there's these two kind of we could say it was competing hormones, female hormones, estrogen, which is a activating hormone for the uterus. And then there's progesterone, which is the progestation. It's the hormone that keeps us pregnant. It keeps the uterus quiet. And as we walk towards the, the physiological onset or spontaneous onset of labor, the estrogen levels go up in the female body. And that helps to activate all of the oxytocin systems that act to help to activate the uterus in preparation for labor and birth and the progesterone effects go down. So the estrogen effect actually increase the number of oxytocin receptors in the uterus. And I'm just going to go back and do some basic physiology. So a receptor is how a hormone works. So the hormone is made, oxytocin made in the brain, finds its way to the uterus. It finds the oxytocin receptors, which are on the outside of the uterine muscle cells and binds to those receptors like putting a key into a lock. And mm-hmm. it sends a chemical message into the cell saying contract. Mm-hmm. And going back to evolution and effective, efficient labor and birth, the mother's uterus needs to be as, as responsive as possible to everything that's happening. And one of those keys to that, literally a key in a lock, is oxytocin receptor numbers. So the receptors go up by, you know, the approximate numbers. These have been measured in real life women from non-pregnant, it's between one and two to, you know, the onset of labor, it's three and a half thousand. So the the yeah. female and, you know, all females we're talking about, all mammalian females, uterus is so much more sensitive to oxytocin at the onset of labor. And again, it's not just that, there's a whole lot of other processes that happen. There's inflammation, there's softening of the cervix, there's prostaglandins, like all of these things are happening in parallel, but we can't push the river. We can't make it happen faster than it and it's designed to happen, and it's designed mm-hmm. to happen through coordination of the mother and the baby to ensure this optimal readiness. That's so amazing, really. When you truly understand the physiology and how complex but also amazingly perfect this biology is, like it, I just sit with such appreciation for what the body is doing and how it knows when you're ready and when your baby's ready and it's it's truly quite amazing, but I think in the the modern day that we live in, this is really hard for women and our medical system as well to sit with. Is this waiting period and this like, when am I going to go into labour and when's it going to happen and I'm overdue and like this stress that I see women encounter in those final weeks of pregnancy is often quite enormous. And I've been through my own journey of that where. There's this looming sort of deadline and I'm stressed out of my brain because I want my body to go into labor, but I don't know when that's going to happen. And I'm wondering, because you're talking about what induces oxytocin and what sort of environments help create that. And so much of that is feeling safe and loved and all of these things. 
I imagine that if you're a pregnant woman in the final stages of pregnancy, stressed out of your brain about what's going to happen and when this is going to happen, surely that must have an effect on how oxytocin is working in your body and when therefore labor is going to begin? Certainly, we don't want any female, any pregnant female to be in a situation of stress and feeling in danger because that's going to inhibit the onset of the processes of labor and birth, which is, mm. as you described, ironic because you <laughs> get stressed because, because of going into labor and birth. But it's not physiology that's stressing us. It's this mm. artificial system that says you should go into labor at a particular time. And if you don't, then this, this is going to happen and you maybe won't mm. be able to have your home birth or your birth center birth, or you'll have to have an induction. So really it's the whole ironic, ironically, the, the system that's created all that stress for, for pregnant women. And I think it's really sad. It's really unfortunate because those last weeks of pregnancy can be a really beautiful, heavy, um, rich time. And, and in fact, it's designed to be like that because that's when we have these maximum levels of oxytocin, not just in our body, but in our brain. So Mother Nature's actually designed us to be not stressed at that time. That's what's meant to happen. We're meant to be not stressed as we go into labor. We're meant to be not stressed in pregnancy, actually. Again, mm -hmm. you know, as we as we go through pregnancy, our oxytocin system gets more and more turned on. Our oxytocin levels go up more and more. This is some of the study I've done in my PhD. And you know, it's designed to be a relaxed, chilled out time, you know, and, mm. and, and traditional cultures have appreciated this, have, you know, like in Eastern cultures, one of the, one of the advices, you know, that pregnant women should think beautiful thoughts and not be stressed <laughs> and be protected from all the stress. And we don't have that understanding in our culture and we expect pregnant women to be superwoman and do everything and, and even more to prove that they're, they're not in this unique vulnerable state but actually we are we're in a unique vulnerable state and we need protection from stress mm. listeners probably are aware all the research showing that stress and pregnancy is not good for the baby either so again a bit of advice the less you can the more you can unstress yourself or create conditions where you feel more relaxed do things that make you feel happy mm. Michelle O'Donnell one of the famous um, natural birth proponents a French surgeon he says eat sardines sing and be happy this <laughs> recipe for, for a good pregnancy because singing releases oxytocin yeah. and sardines have uh, essential fatty acids so <laughs> oh I love that and it is really sad I agree because it's like it is this time of being able to dip into this beautiful state that you're primarily designed to be in. Um, and look, really, I think a lot of us probably aren't seeking pleasure and joy as much as we could before we fall pregnant. So we probably just carry on with much of the same routine and whatnot that we used to. And I know in my first two pregnancies, it was very much just get on with life, continue working as if I wasn't pregnant. Life is as per usual. I just have this big belly. And then the final stages of my pregnancy were very mad with, if I don't go into labor, this is going to happen. And a lot of stress and a lot of like impatience. And a, my mind was not in that beautiful, blissful, oh, I can't wait. I feel so juiced up and ready to give birth sort of mode. But in my third pregnancy, I got to experience that. And I got to experience going to 42 weeks and not being stressed and not being scared. and. I had the best last couple of weeks of pregnancy and there was no pressure and there was no, no needing to make anything happen. And I had the most beautiful home birth experience and my oxytocin was just through the roof compared to my first two experiences. And 
We always joke about my daughter because I think Rhea Dempsey may have mentioned this to me, but when you have that full oxytocin experience, your child actually has more oxytocin receptors and you can tell me if I'm wrong there or not, but I swear that my child is just so full of love. Not that my other two are, but there's just something about her. I'm like, oh my gosh, she has more oxytocin. That's why she's just... She is just so full of it because she had such a different experience to my first two. And we always just joke. We're like, look at her. She's just the most loved up, joyful little thing. Mm. Yeah. Just going back to that, like what we discovered in the the research that we've done more recently is that you know, the baby has their own whole oxytocin system. And besides all the benefits we've talked about already, oxytocin is actually antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. It helps the baby to get through the stress and pain of labor. Um, people might've heard of, or particularly birth workers, often if you're going to do something painful to a baby, give it a, 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 an injection, you often, you want to do it in the few hours after birth because babies have this extra pain relief that lasts a little while. So the processes of labor and birth, probably the massage-like, you know, movements of the contraction stimulating the baby, plus the actual stresses of labor that we say hypoxic, the low oxygen stresses from that pressure on the placenta that reduces the blood supply. Both of those things contribute to this increase in the baby's oxytocin. And, and newborn babies actually have higher levels even than the mother. So it's our part of our superb design for our babies to be born with high levels of oxytocin, for our babies to be born in this state of calm, connection, ready to connect, ready to breastfeed. I say it's like the, when the mother's got the high oxytocin and the baby does too, it's like the best first date ever. <laughs> They're both ready to fall in love. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. I know this all sounds so wonderful. But I know that unfortunately the reality of this playing out for many women is not the case. Before we move on to where this is maybe not happening and how certain things can interfere with this, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the hormonal physiology in pregnancy and birth? I guess uh, one of the main points I want to make, um, as I've said, you can't push the river. There's a whole lot of preparations that happen, not just oxytocin, but other hormones, other hormone systems, getting mother and baby ready. And um, we'll probably come back to this point, but I say that the whole thing is like a wedding. It's like, I say, even the royal wedding. And if William and Kate turned up at Westminster Cathedral a week beforehand, things wouldn't be the same. Everything wouldn't be ready. And um, even a day beforehand, even an hour beforehand, and some of these animal studies, the uh, the final preparations only happen in those last few hours before the physiological onset of labor. That um, the full ripeness of the baby, the full ripeness of the mother at the physiological onset of labor is really important. And we've got this whole system where we think we can just jump over that and it's all going to be the same, but it's not the same. Like our hormones are designed to work in this particular sequence. And if they don't work in that sequence, we can have what I call hormonal gaps. So I wanted to say that. Okay. So that, that sounds amazing. And that I can so appreciate and respect all of that. And like I said earlier, unfortunately, that's not the situation for many women birthing in Australia right now. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe I saw a stat recently that said only 30% of women will experience true quote unquote natural labor, which means that there's a lot of interference. There's a lot of intervention right now. And surely this must be having some sort of effect on these hormones. I can't imagine that it's not. So could you maybe talk us through? Induction is is a huge one, I know. And a lot of women 
may believe that the hormone you're given for induction is the same as the oxytocin we're talking about now. So could you maybe explain how interventions such as induction may affect this hormonal cascade, this normal physiology, and how they're different to true synthet- um, true you know, hormonal you know, uh, oxytocin as opposed to synthetic? Yeah. The first thing to say is that every intervention has its place. So cesareans, induction, epidurals, um, all of those things can be helpful, even life-saving for mothers and babies. So we don't want to stop any interventions. But I guess one thing is we want interventions to be done when they're really necessary and when the balance of benefit is higher than the risk. And also the other um, point is that these interventions can also disrupt some of these hormonal systems that we've been talking about. And the way I describe that is they can create a hormonal gap. Yeah. And we need to be aware of the hormonal gap and then take some actions to address that hormonal gap. So we'll come back to the hormonal gap, um, how we, what we can do to address them. But just going back to um, our conversation about private, safe and unobserved. So we're laboring at home, it's all going well, we're in the zone, we go to hospital, we don't feel private, safe and unobserved, our oxytocin levels go down, like our stress levels go up and labor slows down or even stops. And we've actually created a hormonal gap, an oxytocin and probably other hormones, hormonal gap. And then what we do or what is done is synthetic oxytocin is given to speed labor up and essentially to fill in that hormonal gap that the environment has caused because we haven't actually taken into account our basic biological evolutionary need to feel private, safe and unobserved in labor. And by the way, just little drop of something here is that one of the ways to to address that is to have your own birth companion, your own midwife ideally, or a doula that comes in and helps helps you to feel private and safe in any circumstance. So so that is the basic, or as Master Wagner said, when you set your foot outside the door, you know, that's the first intervention because no other Mm. animal would give birth with strange people, like it's not safe in an evolutionary sense. And and that's what our primal brain often picks up. So that's important to know. So that's a, mm. a foundation really, or Michelle Arnold calls it yeah. the basic needs of the laboring woman or, or yes. animal really. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I haven't heard that quote before, but that's really interesting to sit with because when you think about it like that, it means home birth is not going to be the the best option for everyone, but it certainly means that you can put really proactive steps in place if you know that you'll be transferring, you know that you'll be going into a different environment and you know that it may be an environment you're unfamiliar with depending on what sort of preparation you've had and where you're giving birth. But there's all these things I'm sure that you can then put in place to try and help knowing what we now know about the hormones and trying to fill that gap as best we can. Like you were saying with the mask in the car or like the sunglasses and having someone that's familiar or having something from home that smells like home or like just something to comfort you so that you can dip back into those really Um, beautiful hormones. So I think that's really powerful knowledge for women to have. I just want to carry um, with that theme a little bit um, and say that The other way we can use our hormonal systems to our advantage if we are transferring to hospital is what I call the snowball of labor. And this is an oxytocin effect. So um, basic physiology, um, we have a concept called homeostasis. So homeostasis is the process by which we stay, our our body physiology, our biology stays even in the face of external changes or even internal changes. So 
we're sitting here listening. Um, suddenly there's a loud noise. My dog barks, it just happened. And my heart rate goes up and my blood pressure goes up and I'm ready for kind of to do something. Um, but we have these systems. I have these systems in my body that detect all oh, my blood pressure and my heart rate's higher than it needs to be and bring them down. So that's called a negative feedback system. Things get too high, they're brought back down again. And that keeps us in homeostasis, which is even like a straight line. But labor is not a homeostatic event. I call it the snowball of labor. It starts small, becomes bigger and bigger, and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable. If you had a baby, even <laughs> yeah. if you want to stop it, you can't stop it. <laughs> nope. But the reason it, it, it has this process, this snowball effect, is because instead of negative feedback loops, we have positive feedback loops. And if you go to my website, um, sarahbuckley.com, and look on the epidural articles, you'll see a picture of these positive feedback loops. So basically what happens is that the sensations from the lower vagina, the cervix, the baby pressing on those parts of our body feeds back to the brain by a specific nerve pathway. And when that information gets to the brain, it actually causes the brain to release more oxytocin. And that oxytocin goes um, from the brain to the body, to the uterus, causes stronger contractions, more sensations. Again, you may have noticed this yourself, the sensations get stronger and stronger. And, though, and that feedback to the brain releases more oxytocin. So you can mm. see this is a positive feedback loop. It's been called the Ferguson reflex at the pushing stage, but it really is one of these um, biological processes that ensures that labor gets bigger and the baby eventually gets pushed out. And just going back to what we said about oxytocin in the brain, because at the same time that this positive feedback loop is releasing oxytocin into the body to make the contractions go faster or stronger, it's also released into the brain. So at that same time, the contractions are getting stronger, the brain's getting more calming, connecting, pain-relieving effect, and the reward and pleasure centers are getting switched on because the stronger the contractions, the closer birth is, and the more the mother is going to need that Um reward and pleasure center activation <laughs> to bond with her baby yes oh i love i nerd out on all of this information because i just i find it so fascinating and i i'm pregnant with my fourth now and i feel like there's still so much i'm learning and uncovering and discovering about how incredible pregnancy and birth is and it yeah it's just so amazing i love hearing all of that so coming back to inductions because I do think this is important for women. Just want to, to say one more thing in there if you want to edit it. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah. So I um so the 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 this positive feedback loop, we can use it um positively for ourselves if we're going to have to transfer to hospital, like if we're going to have a hospital birth, right? So what happens is at the beginning of labor when the snowball's small before it's had a chance to build up through these positive feedback loops, labor can be very disruptable. So you go to hospital early in labor, things slow down or stop, especially with your first baby when you haven't been through all these processes before. There's not a pathway, you could say. But as the snowball gets bigger and bigger from these positive feedback loops, when you get to the end, the snowball is so big, it's unstoppable. That's the time to go to hospital because that's when the processes are much less likely to get disrupted by, by moving. And in fact, the stress of disruption at that point can actually trigger a faster labor. You've probably heard stories about women going to hospital and they had their baby as soon as they got out of the lift, that kind of thing, because at that time, it's a different process. And there's a, an evolutionary reason for that. If we're 
laboring in the wild or any mammal in the wild at the beginning of labor and a, and, a, and a predator turns up, I call it the saber-toothed tiger effect, you know, it makes much more sense for labor to stop and the female can gather herself up, find a safe place, you know, the stress levels go down and labor resumes. But if the predator, the saber-toothed tiger, turns up at the end of labor is virtually unstoppable, then it makes much more sense to give birth quickly, scoop up the baby and run away. And that the um, effect that can happen through these positive feedback loops, which is why, you know, you can use your biology, you can use your oxytocin physiology to stay home until labor is so big it's unstoppable. <laughs> Having your own midwife or doula at home is helpful at this point. Um, and then know when to and transfer to hospital and then have a, a, your baby soon after arriving in hospital. Ah, oh, that makes so much sense. I've actually never heard anyone speak about it in that way, but that really makes so much sense. And I feel like that would be such a good imagery for women to be having while they're at home. Like, where's this snowball at? Is this like a teeny tiny snowball with not much momentum yet? Or is this like a big snowball that's running down a hill right now and there's no stopping it? That's probably a really good imagery and visualization for women to be thinking about when they're like in that. I know a lot of women worry about that. When do I transfer? When's a good time? And I love that snowball. And it makes so much sense. Back when the saber-toothed tiger was a predator, like there are points in labor where it tips over into, no, actually get this baby out ASAP because it's going to be better for me to run away right now as opposed to, nope, keep them tucked in there. They're not close enough. Let's just stay pregnant for a little bit longer. So Yes, that makes so much sense. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's exactly it. And I'll just share one other little gem. So um, when I do my workshops, I ask midwives and doulas and birth workers and women their experience. And I ask the question, how do you know when a woman's ready to go to hospital? That snowball is so big, it's unstoppable. And one of the midwives said to me, I know she's ready to go to hospital when she can't remember her phone number. <laughs> because as those processes of life happen, we get deeper and deeper into that limbic system, deeper and deeper into this internal state. And that's really important too, that we are in a situation where we can feel safe and comfortable to do that. In that state, you can be quite uninhibited. You can do just follow what your body needs. You can tell people what you really need. Like, I don't want that person in here. I want that person in here. You could even swear at people. I've done that in my labors, right? Oh, same. Because, <laughs> yeah, because that's the ruthlessness, if you like, that's needed to have the right circumstance to give birth. That's the evolutionary survival that's kicking in. This is what I need to have my baby safely. And it's, again, really important that you're in a situation where you can actually say those things and do those things. We can change your mind and tell someone to leave or someone to come, being flexible for whatever's going to unfold on whatever you're going to need in that particular time in your labor. It's so funny you say that. I was just reflecting on my third birth and obviously I was filled with oxytocin at this stage and I was very uninhibited because my husband, the poor man, was trying so hard. I was using him to, I was standing up, squatting down, bearing down, getting ready for pushing and I'm a strong woman and I was pulling on him with all my might and I just kept telling him, you've got to hold me harder and I was just being so ruthless. Oh. I was just like, you, this is what I need. You need to do it. And then I actually bit him, which never in my wildest dreams would I think that I would do something like that. But it was just this natural reaction to the intensity that I was feeling. Yeah, yeah. And I think, oh my gosh, like at the time I didn't, think that was odd or question it or but in the sober day of light many days after I'd given birth I went 
oh my gosh, do you remember that I beat you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just oh, like, oh my gosh, yeah. I just, at the time though, so uninhibited. That's just something that I felt I needed to do. Oh, it's so, so smart to get yourself in a situation where you can do that. That's really important to feel yes. that you can, to have people that that can be open to that, that can deal with that, that are used to that. That's normal because in a lot of circumstances, we expect women to give birth. It, that would be not normal. That would be a difficult thing to do. And as you say, that expression of what's going on in our body, just the letting go, the, this enormous degree that we have to open up to let our babies out, that really takes something. That really takes a, a, a lack of inhibition. It really takes a, a willingness for the people around to hold that space for the woman birthing person to make that incredible process happen. 100%. And I know for me, my personal journey was I was very loud and very vocal and I did swear a lot. And I remember a girlfriend reflecting to me on her birth experience and she was saying that essentially she was made to feel like she couldn't use her voice, like she was being dramatic and she was being very noisy and it meant that she had to like, she couldn't fully express herself and she couldn't fully just step into that zone. It really did affect her birth experience. So I think it's so important what you said about the people around you knowing how to hold that space and knowing that it's you know, so beautiful for this woman to feel she can express herself and be uninhibited and that it's not a show and it's not a performance and it's not a drama. It's just beautiful and it's the natural part of labor and allowing someone to fully go into that expression, I think, is amazing. And that's another reason why laboring at home is so much easier because that's difficult to do in a ward or where there's lots of other people around. Like you're, mm. you, even if no one else says anything to you, you're going to be a bit inhibited there. Again, laboring at home for as long as you can or for the whole thing mm. is really helpful, really supportive of your physiology and labor. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Now, Sarah, I do want to touch base on this because I know, like I was saying earlier, the stats for induction are big. And I don't want women who are getting induced to understand all this physiology of the hormones and then think that they need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and that, you know, everything is lost and that they can't do anything proactively to try and fill this hormonal gap. So you mentioned hormonal gaps earlier. Could you explain two things? One is how the actual process of what we're talking about, like natural um, oxytocin versus artificial oxytocin, how those two things work differently or the same, whatever you feel like you want to engage with. And then also what women who are being induced can do themselves to try and fill that gap so that they don't think that all is lost and there's nothing they can do to really try and amp up their own oxytocin system. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. So synthetic oxytocin is um, exactly the same molecule. Again, if you look on, I've got several blogs on my website about synthetic oxytocin. So the molecule is exactly the same. But the difference is when we, with our own oxytocin, we make it in the brain and it goes from the brain into the body. And as I said, also from the brain into the brain. So at the same time that the labor contractions are getting stronger, we're getting this additional hormonal help in our brain of calming, connecting, pain relieving. So synthetic oxytocin obviously is not injected into the brain. (laughs) They've done that in animal studies, but um, you can't do it to women in labor. So it's injected into the body. So it has these powerful effects on the uterus. It makes birth go faster, but it doesn't have these effects in the brain. So 
you can get the mismatch of a more intense label without those calming pain relieving effects to the same extent. So that's one thing about synthetic oxytocin. And the second thing is, especially when it's used for induction, is we've got to give more than the woman would naturally have. Remember, I talked about the receptors and how the receptor numbers go up from one to two non-pregnant, actually about a thousand before the onset of labor, and then three and a half thousand at the onset of labor. So that difference three times almost um, increase at the onset of labor. If you're being induced, you don't have that. So your body's not quite ready. You're, you don't have the receptor numbers. You're not going to respond in the same way. So generally, we've got to give higher doses um, to induce women than women would naturally produce themselves in labor. And that can cause stress in the body. So we've done some recent studies looking at synthetic oxytocin, and we actually did what's called a systematic review where we got all the studies that had actually measured women's oxytocin levels with and without synthetic oxytocin. So when they had synthetic oxytocin, their levels were moderately like two to three times higher than, that, than what they would naturally produce because the hormones going into the body and um, when you measure it, you can't differentiate the natural from the synthetic. So we do get high levels, not extremely high levels. You know, when I first started doing this work and, and still there is a, a misconception that you know, the, the mother gets these really high levels and it crosses to the baby and crosses to the baby's brain and causes autism, et cetera. So what we showed in that study was the levels just aren't high enough to do that. It doesn't easily cross biological membranes. The actual molecule of oxytocin is not a fat-soluble molecule, so it doesn't, doesn't cross. It, the levels aren't high enough to cross to the placenta and high enough to cross to the baby, so it doesn't call, cause all those direct harms. But what we did... Um, the conclusion we came to with this study is that the higher levels of synthetic oxytocin that are given really can stress the uterine muscle. And the uterus is a muscle, the uterine muscle works hard in labor. And it's like when you go for a run, if your muscles work hard, they produce lactic acid. And lactic acid is painful. You get the aching of your muscles, right? And the same thing happens in labor. If you overstress the uterine muscle, you get a buildup of lactic acid. And in the end, that can actually slow labor down. And then you've got to give more synthetic oxytocin to counter the natural protection, you could say, of the uterine muscle to not overwork. So overworking the uterine muscle with synthetic oxytocin or even other methods of induction causes physiological stress in the body. And women have been induced probably can relate to this, that the induction is more stressful than a natural labor. And we think that stress probably can shift from the oxytocin, parasympathetic, calm and connection system into a more sympathetic stress system. And we think mm. that's not helpful for the mother and not helpful for the baby either. Um, but coming back to like generally in, in relation to induction, we don't actually know some of the longer term effects. There's not even good research on induction and breastfeeding outcomes. We want to know, does it impact breastfeeding? And we don't have good studies on that. As I mentioned, you're skipping over all the full readiness of the mother, all the full readiness of the baby, and we don't actually know all the implications for that. And just one more thing to say, and again, if you go to my website and my articles, particularly about the ARRIVE trial, which was a big induction trial um, done a few years ago, which has really influenced practice. A lot of more women are getting induced at 39 weeks because of this. So the other side of it is, is the baby at full readiness and not just for labor and birth, but you know, the baby's brain is developing very rapidly at the end of, la at the end of pregnancy. And, you know, if the baby, if, if labour hasn't begun, then it hasn't been initiated. And by definition, the baby's not fully ready and the mother's not fully ready. And 
what does that mean for the baby's full brain development? Like there's a lot of nowadays, a lot of public health studies looking at big data sets of children's academic outcomes, children's development versus their gestation. And it seems 41 weeks, even 42 weeks is better outcomes than 39 to 40 weeks. So those last weeks of brain development are probably important for the baby as well. Mm, I really love all of that information, Sarah. And I do highly recommend, I've read every single blog on your website and it's really informative. So I do encourage anyone who wants to look further into this topic or any of those studies that you mentioned, definitely go check out. I'll put this all in the show notes, but there's some really great articles on there to help you come to really informed decisions for yourselves and to help to understand the research and why we do the things that we do and the reasons behind them. And I think that's just really great information for women to read. It's really digestible. It's not all this technical speak that you won't understand. It's really easy to read. So I do encourage everyone to go and check out your blogs. Yeah, they were amazing when I was reading all of them. Now, I just want to, just, just want to add one more thing about yeah. interventions, um, Laura, because the other problem with induction is it can lead to what we call the cascade of interventions. So as I mentioned, when you're induced, you're getting stronger contractions than your body would naturally produce, especially early in labor, and you haven't had the chance to build up your kind of natural pain relieving effects. So often you need stronger pain relief, which is often an epidural. And um, conversely, if you have an epidural, it actually interferes with your oxytocin system and you often need synthetic oxytocin to fill in the hormonal gap. So epidurals have been sold as like the best thing because they completely abolish pain, but the pain is of labor is actually your body's signal. So if we go back to that positive feedback loop that we talked about that drives the snowball of labor, it's the sensations that drive that positive feedback loop. So that's the problem with epidurals is they're so effective at abolishing sensations. Our positive feedback loop slows down, labor slows down and can even stop. And then you need synthetic oxytocin to fill in the hormonal gap that you've created. And the other problem with the other concern about epidurals is that if there's that hormonal gap in the body that we can measure, what about the hormonal gap in the brain? Yeah, there's mm. not those peaks of oxytocin that is designed to be calming, connecting, not just pain relieving, but switching on those reward and pleasure centers. So again, we don't have really good evidence around what's the impact of epidurals on that birth euphoria, on bonding, for example. And there are some studies showing there are some kind of measurable uh, hormonal gaps related to that in the brain. It's a longer, I can, I can talk more about that, but it's, it's a longer answer. Yeah. I think this is, yeah, really important though, because I remember when I was getting induced for my first baby, like the conversation around induction and the pros and the cons and all of that, obviously, because doctors only have a limited amount of time, I wasn't, I had no clue about any of this. I did not know about hormonal physiology and how potentially induction could affect that. And what that could look like long-term and rada, rada, rada. And so that's why I just think it's so great to be able to put this information out there for women because it's really going to help inform their decisions and help them feel like they've got a really good understanding of so much more because this information isn't, like I said, necessarily on the piece of paper for informed consent for an induction. And I just think it's really helpful to know about it because it is really important to understand this. So I'm just so glad that you're sharing this with the world. I think it's really important. So thank you. Now, one topic I really wanted to cover with you, Sarah, was the third stage. So that they call that the third stage of labor. Most women will know this is delivering your placenta. Now, the reason I wanted to cover this is because 
my understanding when I was teaching active birth classes when I was having my first two children was that this was just not really something that you think about. And I, I'm actually ashamed to admit that when I did active birth classes, when we got to the slide on third stage, and granted this was a presentation handed down to me and I was taught how to present it and all of that, but the information on third stage literally said this will either happen on its own or the doctor will give you an injection to help with this. But for the most part, you'll be so loved up in your baby bubble, you won't know what's happening. And I think about that now and I think, oh my gosh, that is so misinformed and that is so not what women should be hearing. And so I feel really passionate about teaching women about what actually happens after you give birth to your baby. Because I think so often you are so caught up on the birth of your baby that many women don't even know that there's something afterwards and there a lot of things can happen afterwards as well. So I really wanted to touch base on this topic and I want to read out something that you wrote, Sarah, because I found it really potent and really powerful. So what you wrote was, at the time when mother nature prescribes awe and ecstasy, we have injections, examinations and clamping and pulling on the cord. Instead of body heat and skin-to-skin contact, we have separation and wrapping where time should stand still for those eternal moments of first contact as mother and baby fall deeply in love. We have haste to deliver the placenta and clean up for the next case. Now that might sound really intense for many women, but unfortunately, that is the reality for a lot of women. And I want women to understand, we've been speaking about the hormonal physiology of pregnancy and of birth. And I want to talk about what are our hormones primed to do in this post-birth hour or two, what are they designed to do versus what is often happening and what does a managed third stage look like compared to a hormonal or a physiological third stage? So could you talk a little bit to this? Yes. Yeah. So if we go back to our oxytocin positive feedback loop and our big snowball, basically as you push your baby out, you're getting these, you have noticed, intense sensations. This positive feedback loop is going very fast. And at the end, at that pushing stage of labor, oxytocin levels are three to four times higher on average than what they were at the start of labor. But then what happens, and and these, and as I said, these peaks of oxytocin we can measure in the blood are also happening in the brain. And there's something that is caused, we don't know exactly the mechanism, whereby these peaks of oxytocin at birth sensitize the skin, sensitize the mother's skin so that she releases a lot of oxytocin in skin-to-skin contact with her baby. So I hope that term skin-to-skin contact is familiar to you because it's really normal. It's just evolution, right? Every other mammal, there's nowhere for the baby to be except on the mother's body. And every mammalian baby knows how to crawl itself up and find the teeth and self-attach. And we actually learned about 10 years ago that human babies can do that too. We were quite blown away. It's called the breast crawl. I recommend you look up videos of it. When the baby's put on the mother's body after birth, it has a stepping movement. And by the way, as it steps up to find the nipple, which smells like amniotic fluid, those stepping of the baby's feet on the mother's uterus actually give the uterus a massage and help the uterus to contract. So Mm. the baby finds the nipple often or usually the first thing the baby does is to actually massage the nipple and then the baby will eventually suckle. And that whole process can take 30 minutes, even more, a bit over an hour in in some situations. But that's our kind of evolutionary blueprint. Babies are designed to be able to find the nipple and self-attach. And it it seems that's probably also the best way 
way for the baby to self-initiate breastfeeding and starts off with a good latch and a good suckle and, and a good imprint for the whole breastfeeding journey. So that's what's designed to happen. And there was a very um, interesting study where they actually videotaped these interactions between mothers and babies. And they every 15 minutes, they measured the mother's oxytocin levels. And what they found was that at birth, following these peaks that the mother's oxytocin level from that peak at birth actually went up in one mother 10 times higher in this first hour after birth. And the reason it did that was because of these interactions between the mother and the baby. So the baby's first breast massage behaviors actually increased the mother's oxytocin levels 10 times from what we could measure. So that was incredible. And then the baby eventually um, began sucking the fist, which is often the baby will do at this stage because they're getting their saliva juices going. And then the baby massaged the breast again, and then the baby eventually suckled. And all of those things caused peaks in the mother's oxytocin. So Mm. the oxytocin peaks of the hour after birth are really dependent on the interactions between the mother and the baby. So it is ironic because for decades, we would take the baby. I was trained to take the baby away, take it over to the corner of the room, examine the baby, give it oxygen if it needed. Mm. And if you do that, you're depriving the mother of those opportunities to release our own oxytocin. We're causing a hormonal gap. And then we've got to give synthetic oxytocin to fill in that mm. hormonal gap. Whereas Mother Nature's superb design is that the baby and the mother together cause a release of oxytocin for the mother. And there's a process, we call it mutual regulation, where the mother's and baby's physiology is regulated between each other. For example, we've said that the peaks of oxytocin for the mother in labor and birth make her very responsive to her baby's touches and she'll she'll um, produce these vast 10 times higher up to levels of oxytocin. And what it actually does at that time and that hour after birth is it causes a flushing on her chest wall. You can sometimes see it as a red, um, yeah. we call it vasodilation, opening up of the blood vessels. And that literally pumps heat to her newborn baby when mm. they're skin to skin on her chest. And the baby will be warmer than anything. You can wrap the baby in or put the baby under and again, 65 million years of mammalian evolution, that's what's kept babies warm all of this time. If the baby's a bit cool, the mother pumps more heat. If the baby's a bit warmer, the mother pumps less heat. So mm. it's exactly what's needed for the baby's survival. And these peaks of oxytocin are actually critical for the mother's survival too, because that's what causes her uterus to contract at this critical time. The placentas come away, there's kind of raw blood vessels on the inside of her uterus. And those peaks of oxytocin that she and her baby together are producing contracts her uterus up nicely and stops her from bleeding. So basically saves her baby's life and saves her mother's, saves the mother's life as well. And that's what's designed to happen. And everything else we've said about the, the brain effects of oxytocin, the calming, the connecting, the pain relieving, the shift for the baby also from the sympathetic nervous system, which actually gets stimulated during labor and birth. It's called the fetal catecholamine surge. The baby shifts into the oxytocin-related parasympathetic um, from being skin to skin, which reduces the baby's metabolic rate, which helps the baby to survive as well. So it's all one kind of package this time after birth, and it depends on the mother and baby being together. And we've developed this third stage of labor in a very unbiological, unevolutionary way of taking the baby away and then having to do all these things to make the mother survive and make the baby survive, whereas Mother Nature's got it all together. And as I say in that quote, it's a very magical time. These peaks of oxytocin for the mother are designed to have her fall in love with the baby and for the baby as well. It's the 
best first date ever. It's that's what it's designed to do to to bond these two. And the baby also actually has peaks of noradrenaline, which helps the baby to learn the scent of the mother. So the the baby gets imprinted with the mother's scent. My twenty three year old is still imprinted with the scent <laughs> from it. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's a package design and then we go and interfere with it by primarily taking the baby away and then we start meddling with the mother and giving her injections and making her worried and pulling on the, like this whole active management, as you mentioned, was designed to stop bleeding, but we actually caused the bleeding that we then had to stop and it's giving the mother an injection, pulling on the cord to make the placenta come out quickly. And the other very um, harmful part of that was actually clamping the baby's cord early within 30, to 60, 30 seconds. 15, 30 seconds after birth. And fortunately, that part of the active management has is, is not generally happening. Hopefully for any of the listeners, don't let anyone clamp the baby's cord straight away because it's not helpful. It doesn't stop bleeding. And in fact, we know that it's harmful. The baby loses up to one third of their blood volume by a, um, a mechanism called placental transfusion. Mm, it's that's so beautiful and I just cannot wait to give birth again because that golden window after birth I just remember so vividly and I had all of the things you mentioned like the flushing on my chest and I just love hearing how perfectly designed our biology is and I love I know this to be true but I love having language around it and you know all of this research to show that yes this is happening and this is what our bodies do and they're amazing and I think that's so beautiful and I'm wondering because you were saying like you were trained to take the baby away and wrap it up and wait and do all those things and you know there's obviously a lot of third stage placentas being actively managed and all of these things it why is that happening is it that the research that you're doing is it quite new all of this hormonal physiology and us truly understanding it and therefore it hasn't come into practice yet just how important it is not to interfere or like wh what's the, the reasoning behind so many women not having this experience for their third stage and their post-birth experience? I guess there's a couple of things there, Laura. One is you're going to birth in an institution and the institution has its own way of functioning and it has to function effective and efficiently. So you're given birth, you're in the birth room and you've got to, they've got to shift you on to the next stage. There's a certain way in which it's a bit like a conveyor belt and you don't have so much um, choice. You have to fit into their systems. And, and that's something that, <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes you don't learn until after you've had a baby. Like you think you're going to hospital and it's going to be all about you and the hospital will adapt to what you need. But the hospital can't adapt because it's an institution. It's not possible for it to do that for each individual, which is why having your own midwife, having your own doula will, will get the maximum adaptability out of the hospital or have your baby at home where there's none of those institutional um, procedures that that everyone has to conform to. The midwives have to conform to even when they don't want to. They've got to measure this and measure that and take your blood pressure and feel your mm -hmm. uterus. And the beautiful thing for me about my home births was that was the time when the my doctor and my midwife would disappear into the next room and do all the paperwork. And I was there in this beautiful undisturbed bubble, you know, with my baby and my partner and other children. And it was perfect. You know, that undisturbed time is so critical. You know, I say that, you know, it's it's the third stage of labor, we're more in labor than we ever are, have been because of those huge peaks of oxytocin. And that makes it vulnerable. You know, um, mm. one of the stories I tell was actually a home birth story I read where 
um, after the baby was born, the or that the children came in and there were phone calls and the placenta hadn't she hadn't birthed her placenta and she said the mother said I went out of labour and the placenta mm. didn't come and she went to hospitals. So it's really important to appreciate the vulnerability of this time. It is still labour and we need to honour the uniqueness and the preciousness of that time. And one of some of the really good things that have happened since I've been involved in this area is. Um, as I said early on, the baby would all be always be taken away. That's what I was trained to do, and the cord would be clamped straight away. And we've stopped doing those things largely, hopefully, for all the listeners, because taking the baby away is is not necessary. And the baby can be examined, and the baby can be left skin to skin on the mother. There's a whole um, process called the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative. I really recommend you have your baby in a baby friendly hospital where they they sign up to this deal where they don't take the baby away. The baby's left skin to skin on the mother even after a cesarean and that's so mm. important at this time. Mm. And also the other beautiful thing that's happened is this, as I said we've started to appreciate the importance of not clamping the cord early and we've actually discovered that that Mother Nature's superb design of no cord clamp, as my friend Sarah Wickham said, if we were designed to clamp the cord, we'd be born with a cord clamp on our far right. We shouldn't be clamping the cord. There's no reason to clamp the cord. No other animal does it. We There's a process where the baby gets actually pumped um, the full amount of their own blood that they need from the placenta through the early minutes after birth. And if we don't clamp the cord, the baby can get um, an extra 100 mils. That's up to one third of their blood supply. That it's not extra blood, it's actually what the baby needs at that time after birth. And again, some of the good research that's convinced people um, around this, the evidence, is that children who get that, and this study actually only delayed cord clamping by 30 seconds, actually had better, um, better developmental outcomes at age four because they got that extra blood, which gave them extra iron, which, inhibit, which reduced anemia, which helped their brain function. Some of these studies are, the evidence is, is, is accumulating. Um, but the way we do that evidence is very reductionist. We look at one outcome and that's mm-hmm. why we started clamping cords because it was part of this package and we thought the whole package is beneficial and it was only when we looked at the cord clamping aspect and went, oh dear, that's not the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we haven't really looked at this time after birth as a whole, as a gestalt, as a matrix of per- perfection really for 65 million years of of mammalian evolution and to not disturb the mother and the baby as far as possible at that time. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I'm curious to know what was the like the perceived benefit of clamping the cord so early? Oh, the reason really, um, Laura, as I said, it was part of the package of active management of labor. Originally, it was actually when women started to lie down to give birth and right. the cord clamp was invented to spare the bed linen so the <laughs> blood didn't drip on the sheets. That's, right. that's basically okay. when it started uh, because previous to that, women would give birth standing up or on the floor or outside or whatever. We didn't have to worry about the blood, but then suddenly we did because mm. birth became more caged and civilized and women started to lie down, and etc. So that yeah. was the origin of it, but it was part of this package of active management which included early cord clamping, drug, usually synthetic oxytocin to cause the uterus to contract, and then controlled cord traction, which means pulling on the cord to get the placenta to come earlier than it would naturally come. So Mm -hmm. all the studies were done on this whole package. And yes, it did seem to 
to some extent um, stop bleeding in some circumstances or stop reduce the amount of postpartum hemorrhage, but nobody looked at the components of it. And now we're looking back thinking, oh dear, we've actually yeah. caused harm by that component of active management of early cord clamping. And it's quite incredible to look at all the literature now, which has like gone 180 degrees from what everyone was saying like 10 years ago. So it's very heartening, but it also is quite sobering well we could get these things really wrong when we think we're doing doing something beneficial absolutely and you can see how something like that just gets such a run on until like it needs a lot of momentum to stop it in its tracks like it needs a lot of evidence to say hang on no we need to turn this around or there needs to be that real push because sometimes things are just done because that's how they're always done and then it takes a lot of undoing for people to change the way they think and I feel like I was birthing my son six years ago and I felt like delayed cord clamping, maybe because I was a new mum, but it felt like this very new on the scene term and it certainly wasn't done all that often. It was like something that you request or put in your preferences. Whereas I feel like these days, like you were saying, it's actually standard procedure. Does it, is it that recent that it's been coming around or is it just my influence of thinking that everything's new because I'm a first time mum? No, I agree with you. If you look at the literature, the way the literature's turned around, it's really been in the last five years, maybe 10 years maximum. So yes, five to 10 years ago, you had to request delayed core clamping. And now hopefully, I'm presuming that's the default in most places. And I really recommend that you ask that question as a, as a birthing person of your care providers, please don't clamp the cord. <laughs> Please don't clamp the cord soon. There's no reason to do it. You know, there's no reason to 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 do immediate cord clamping apart from, as you say, habit, from um, you know, misguided um, procedures, and from that institutional, you know, urge to process everything and tick the box. And you know, um, you know, one one of the one of the things that stood in the way of of early uninterrupted skin to skin contact is that is that bit on the form that says what did the baby weigh so you're going to take yeah. the baby away to weigh it and then give the baby back and there's studies showing that even that little bit of like little bit of removal is harmful the baby doesn't do the proper breast call when they've been taken away and put back again so mm. the baby knows what to do the baby doesn't want to be taken away they cry when we take them away if we listen to the babies we'd, we'd be much better off yes absolutely yeah I think this conversation has been so wonderful Sarah thank you so much for coming on because I just, like I said, I'm pregnant with my fourth and I interview women for a living and I still feel like I've learned so much from this conversation and it's really helped cement so many ideas in my mind and such an appreciation and respect for our hormones and what they're designed to do. So thank you so much for sharing this with everyone. I know people are going to take absolute nuggets of gold away from this conversation. I just love to know if there's any final words that you'd love to share before we wrap this up. Yeah, and I think my message is that our bodies are superbly designed for growing our babies, for birthing our babies, for breastfeeding our babies. And we really just need to create the conditions that allow this to happen and to trust our bodies. Our bodies know what to do. 65 million years of mammalian evolution. Yeah, superbly (laughs) designed, every one of us. Mm, Trust is such a key part of that's for sure. Thank you for joining us, Sarah. I, I so appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. My pleasure. And yeah, sending lots of love and good wishes to everybody birthing out there. Hello, mamas. I really hope that you love that chat and that you now have a really deep understanding and respect for how truly amazing our bodies are. Like I've been working in this space for over 10 years. I have had 
six pregnancies in total. I'm about to birth my fourth baby and yet I still continue to learn all these different layers of hormones and how perfectly designed our bodies are to do this and it blows my mind and it doesn't blow my mind in like I'm surprised I'm so not surprised because our bodies are perfectly designed to do this but it's the respect I have for it that's so profound and the amazement I have for the intricacy and the detail and I just don't even think we can come close to ever fully understanding all the different factors that make up why our bodies do what they do but it's incredible and I really love learning about it and I hope that this conversation has helped you understand that a little bit more as well and how to protect that physiology in labor birth and mothering so as always please go and check out Dr Sarah Buckley she's an incredible teacher in this space you can find her at Dr Sarah J Buckley on social media or go and check out her website which is full of amazing blogs and resources for you to go and look at and if you love this episode please come on over to at physio laura and let me know what you loved i will be now taking a hiatus uh, as i go and cocoon into my little birthing bubble to have baby number four and spend some really beautiful connected time with my family so i will not be bringing out any podcast interviews for the foreseeable future who knows i might change my mind but at the moment There will definitely be some sort of hiatus or break indefinitely. And I thank you so much for being here, for all of your wonderful support and feedback, for the beautiful community you have helped me to foster and create over the last three years of running this podcast, all the amazing feedback I've given, all the incredible conversations I've been able to have with women. You have really helped me grow as a woman, as a mother, as a physiotherapist, like to be able to learn what I've learned from the women on this podcast has been truly amazing and I'm, I'm feeling deep love and gratitude for the last three years and I thank you so much for being here have a wonderful Christmas and holiday period and I don't know when we'll speak next but I wish you all the best I hope you're having an amazing time in whatever season of life you're in right now and yeah I'll talk to you later bye mm-hmm.